Can you imagine having a new member welcome every single day? Wouldn't that be amazing? It would be maybe a little stressful as, as well, right? So for a long time, uh, before I entered seminary and started working on church staffs, I, I volunteered pretty heavily in the churches that I was a part of. And usually I was involved with youth and young adult ministry at that stage of my life. And, and this particular church that Laura and I were a part of, we served as volunteers of the, in the middle school ministry, and we essentially ran the ministry for the church. They had a high school director, and they had a children's director, but there was a, a bit of a gap uh, in terms of numbers of kids in the middle school, and so the church had yet to hire somebody uh, to fill that, that role uh, exclusively, and so we kind of stepped in as, as sort of the de facto staff people uh, for that. And the high school director knew that I had a lot of experience with, with youth, uh, and the church was planning a lock-in. Uh, at, the, at the church where kids would come at you know, 8 o'clock at night uh, and there would be stuff going on all night long and they'd leave at 8 o'clock in the morning. And he came to me about a month out from the lock-in having planned basically nothing for it. Uh, and he shared how burnt out he was uh, and how he was just struggling to plan and he asked me if I would take over the planning of this event. And he'd, he'd be there as the staff person, he'd support it, uh, but he'd really appreciate if he didn't have to run it. And so I said, fine, no problem. I had run lock-ins before, uh, so we started to plan. And at that point in time, there were about 20 or 30 high school kids that were a part of, of the church. So a, a decent-sized group, but not huge. It was pretty, pretty manageable. And we figured that even if some of the kids brought friends and we knew some of the kids wouldn't come, uh, we'd, we'd have at most 50 kids. And so that's the amount of food that we bought, that's, uh, that's what we planned for in terms of activities, that, that's the volunteer staffing that we had put together. We really did most of the work to take the, off the plate of the high school director. There is one thing that he did do uh, in an attempt to be helpful. He uh, went on the local Christian radio station in town. And he promoted a free lock-in for any kids in town that wanted to attend. Which would have been fine, except he didn't tell us that he was going to do that or that he had done that. And none of the volunteers who were running this were listening to that radio station at the time that he was on. So comes time for the lock-in. We're there. And kids start to show up. And they keep coming and coming and coming. Where we thought we would have about 50 kids, it ended up being closer to about 200. It was chaos. There were kids everywhere. We were, we were scrambling for food and supplies. We had arranged to go over to the local YMCA, and we, we had a, a guy who had a school bus that he just owned. Why he owned a school bus, I have no idea, but it was great, and he drove it, and, and he spent three hours shuttling kids back and forth on the school bus, and then three hours shuttling them back to the church when, when we were done. You know, we had to keep kids out of, out of rooms that they weren't supposed to be in because you get 200 teenagers uh, in a room together. And, you know, there's just stuff that will happen that, you know, shouldn't happen in a church. And so we had to make sure that, you know, that that wasn't, uh, wasn't going on. 
It, 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 was, it was really cool, though. I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was exciting, but it was exhausting. And when the, the night was over and I, I got home in the morning, I picked up some breakfast, ate it, uh, sat down on my couch, turned on Sports Center, rested my, my head back on the cushion, and woke up 10 hours later. I think that's probably a taste of what was going on in the early church in our reading in Acts 2. So, so just a little bit of a, a background. Uh, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus promises his disciples that they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit that they will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends to heaven and he had given them instructions, go to Jerusalem and wait for this Holy Spirit to show up. And they didn't really know what it was they were, they were waiting for, but they didn't know what else to do. Jesus had left and really had left no other instructions but that. And so they're in uh, an upper room, probably the same upper room where the Last Supper had taken place. And a few days later, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them and empowers them, draws people to them. They're speaking in all these different languages that people can understand that had come from all over the world. At that point in time, Pentecost was a celebration uh, that lots of people would come to Jerusalem for. And so there were, there were tons of people, way more people than you could have possibly expected to show up. And so Peter gets up. He gives the world's first Christian sermon, and 3,000 people come to faith that day. Exciting, right? Like, that'd be pretty cool to see, but for those sort of managing that event, you know, probably a little bit exhausting. At that point, they estimated about 120 people in Jerusalem who had embraced faith in Jesus, who had embraced and adopted Jesus' mindset of mercy who had committed their lives to Jesus' movement of mercy, who had embraced the responsibility as children of God, who gave them the motivation for mercy. 120 people now tasked with 3,000 and, and what to do next. And as the world around them recognized its need for Jesus, it, it, and came looking for a place at the bigger table that Jesus came to build. These first disciples needed a mechanism for mercy. So that's what they built. Because the mercy that the 3,000 received was not just found in a profession of faith in response to the gospel being preached, everything that happened next. So Peter gets up, preaches this sermon, all these people come to faith, and yes, they experience God's mercy in that moment, but that wasn't it. Everything that happened next was an extension of Jesus' mercy. And as we respond to the call to be people who join Jesus in provoking life, and helping Jesus change the world. As we become people that live faithfully according to the Beatitudes that we've been walking through all year, and specifically this one, Matthew 5, verse 7, let's read it together. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. As we respond to the call of Christ to be these people, the Holy Spirit has given us tools 
to respond to the growing recognition in our world of their need for Jesus. And there is evidence of this going on all around us if you've been paying attention. So lots of you probably watched the Super Bowl. There were a couple of commercials that were put out for a campaign called He Gets Us. And $7 million a pop, right? Like that's a pretty expensive Jesus commercial. And it's ignited a lot of conversation around whether commercials are the right way and the amount of money being spent and whether this is right or, or wrong. And I don't, I'm not going to take a position on that. The one thing that I'll say about the He Gets Us campaign that not many people are really aware of is that if you are someone who is spiritually open and you see that campaign and you uh, want to respond, you can go to a website and the website will connect you with a local congregation in your area and a local Christian leader. And we are actually a part of that campaign. So I, I took a pause uh, on it when I was on sabbatical, but prior to, this has been going on for uh, a little over two years, actually. And, and so during uh, like May and June, when I had signed up, I probably had 20 to 30 text message conversations with people who had responded to the He Gets Us campaign. And that's something that is, that is ongoing. We haven't received many lately, uh, but as I think more churches get involved, they sort of spread it out uh, a, a, little, a little bit more. But that's something that, that then when you frame this $7 million spent on these ads, you know, is it really worth it to create an opportunity to connect people with local churches? I'll leave that up to you to decide. But here's the reality. If the people who funded the ads didn't believe that there wasn't a need out there for Jesus that people were feeling, they wouldn't have spent $7 million per commercial, right? They responded to what they saw as a need and the potential for a response to those ads. So that's, that's just one piece of evidence that the world is growing in its awareness of a need for God. Another, another piece of evidence right now at Asbury University in Kentucky, uh, there's this crazy thing where the, it's a Christian college and so they have chapel every week and, and that's a requirement to, uh, to be a student there to go to chapel. And at the end of that chapel service, they said, hey, if anybody wants to stick around and, and continue to pray, continue to worship, we're going to continue to do that. And that was like 10 days ago and it's still going on. And again, lots of conversation about the validity of that and, and our you know, ongoing church services and worship and prayer. Is that really what a revival looks like? And again, I'm not going to make a statement about that other than to say this is more evidence of a growing awareness of the need for Jesus in our world. And then on the flip side, we just had another tragic senseless act of violence in our state, revealing the, the brokenness of our culture and the systemic challenges that allow for these events to happen and to become all too common. There are a variety of reasons why these events happen, but the reality is at the core, there is a breakdown in the system of our country that permits these things from happening. And so there is a need. There is a need for God. We've always kind of known it, but it's becoming more and more real as the, 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 the fragility of our society, the cracks in the foundation become greater. And through that, what is breaking in is a recognition 
of just how desperate we are for something that is bigger than ourselves to give us meaning and purpose and fulfillment and life. And that's where the church comes in. Because Jesus's bigger table that we've been talking about for the last several weeks is the mechanism of mercy. The Spirit has given us the tools to build a bigger table, to address, to step in to the cracks in the foundation of our society. We have everything we could possibly need. My only maybe criticism of all of the revival stuff going on in Kentucky is that it assumes that only at certain places and certain times is the fullness of the Spirit of God uh, present. In your baptism, you have the fullness of the presence of God in your life. The question is whether or not you yield to it. And so I think what we're, what we're seeing in these events where these, these profound experiences, spiritual experiences, aren't that all of a sudden God shows up in a way that is, that is more profound than other times. It's that we show up open and yielding to the presence of God. What God is doing in the lives of people at that school, God is ready, willing, and able to do everywhere if we are open. Spirit has given us the tools to build a bigger table. And so what are those tools? Well, it's the same values that we talk about around here that are plastered in different places uh, in, in our building. Those, to, those tools are worshiping passionately, connecting deeply, and living generously. We see all of those values at play in our Acts reading. Worshiping passionately, they had a devotion to the apostles' teaching and to prayers. Their faith was not rooted in a once-a-week church service, but in a daily engagement with God. And the result of that engagement, both individually and communally, resulted in a sense of awe that came over everyone as God performed miraculous acts in their midst. There's something about us yielding to God that gives God permission to do the miraculous among us. They, they connected deeply. They were devoted to shared meals together on a regular basis. It wasn't like, hey, we should get together and have a meal. Let's get our calendars out. And we realize that we can't find a date that works for everyone until five weeks from now. Because they prioritized connecting deeply because they knew that those were the tools that Jesus had given to build a bigger table. They gathered both in the temple and in homes, in the building and in the neighborhood, sharing meals, which in their day and ours, hospitality is the driver for community and connection. You want to have relationships with people that go deeper than just talking about the weather and the game and whatever surface, have them over to your house for a meal. And then go to theirs when they invite you. That's where connection and community is really formed. We can do some of that here on Sunday, but it's limited. Gathering at the table for a meal really drives that connection and community. And then finally, living generously. Their devotion to the community was expressed tangibly. They shared all they had. They would sell what they possessed 
in abundance to ensure, ensure that no one was in lack and that the community was sustainable. And if I'm honest, I've read this passage a number of times, I've preached on it a number of times, and that last part is always the one that kind of raises my anxiety a little bit, right? They shared everything they had. Oh, wait a minute. You mean I have to actually sacrifice financially to support others? I don't know. That's, that's maybe a little too much. I don't, I don't know about that. And yet it was out of a sense of love and a sense of commitment and a recognition that no matter what they gave of themselves, not just the, the tangible you know, possession stuff, but in general, no matter what they gave of their, themselves, they trusted that you just can't outgive God because it's all God's stuff. It's God's time. It's God's energy. And so when we give, we cannot outgive God. And Luke, who is the author of, of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, it was really probably one long uh, piece of, of writing split up into two books for our, for our engagement. But he tells us that the impact was incredible in verse 47. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. But saved from what? What does that mean? be saved? That's that's the big question, right? Like, what is the difference that Jesus makes in someone's life? One of the the difficulties of of being a person who's been involved in church a long time, has been following Jesus a long time, is you kind of forget the difference that Jesus made. You kind of forget what your life was like before you encountered Christ. Or if you're someone who's always kind of had that relationship with Jesus, you really can't imagine what it would be like without But it is a question that we have to wrestle with. How do people benefit from finding a place at the bigger table? What does God's mercy do? What are we inviting them into? And there are a lot of ways to answer that question. But the the answer that I love is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. Because he contrasts being compelled by selfishness with being guided by the Spirit. And when you're compelled by selfishness, it's going to lead you down a path that runs contrary to God's will and breaks the law of God. And Paul gives quite a list of what selfishness can compel us to and the outcome of that compulsion. He says in Galatians 5, starting in verse 19, The actions that are produced by selfish motives are obvious, since they include sexual immorality, moral corruption, doing whatever feels good, idolatry, drug use and casting spells, hate, fighting, obsession, losing your temper, competitive opposition, conflict, selfishness, group rivalry, jealousy, drunkenness, partying, and all things like that. All the fun stuff, right? What it feels like. I warn you as I have already warned you that those who do these kinds of things won't inherit God's kingdom. Now there's a way of hearing that that sounds punitive, that sounds like if you do these things that that the world might lift up and say, you know, this is where life is found, that somehow God's going to drop the hammer on you. I don't read it that way. I think there are natural consequences to our selfishness. I think there are decisions we make guided by what we want for our lives that lead us down a road 
that does not bring life. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. There's reasons why God has laws. There's reasons why God says, do this, not that. And it isn't to restrict us or, or, or bind us in or to make us fall in line. It's because God created life. And so it stands to reason that God, God knows where life is found. He said, it's not found in this list. And there's not one of us in this room or beyond these walls who aren't guilty of being compelled by selfishness, right? There's not one of us who's not been down the path that Paul describes in some way. There might be some of these things on here that you would never even imagine doing, but there are certainly things on this list that you know you've done and continue to do. That's the path away from God's kingdom, and that's what we're saved from. When Paul talks about this list, and when Luke writes about daily people were being saved, this is what they were being saved from. And this is what the world needs saving from. And Paul says that being guided by the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, it leads us down a different path, one where we are connected to God's mercy. And there's a list of outcomes that are equally profound. He says in verse 22 of Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against things like this. There's laws against the other stuff because that's not where life is found. There are no laws against this because this is where life can be. And isn't this list the one we really want? Isn't this what we want our lives characterized by? And so when you and I worship passionately, connect deeply, live generously. Build the bigger table, which is the mechanism of mercy. That is what we are offering to the world. That is the difference that Jesus makes. The church is God's chosen means through which the invitation to the bigger table goes out into the world. Jesus's bigger table is the mechanism of mercy. If we have this great gift to give to the world, the same gift that you and I have been given. And if we don't like the way the world is unfolding, if we turn on the news and see things that we can't believe are happening, then it's on us to make the invitations because that's the solution. Paul writes this in Romans 10. He says, all who call on the Lord's name will be saved. So how can they call on someone they don't have faith in? And how can they have faith in someone they haven't heard of? And how can they hear without a preacher? Now, you may not consider yourself qualified to be in the, a preacher in the sense that, you know, you'll give a sermon, although if maybe you feel like you are, let me know. I'm happily have you come up here on a Sunday morning. But anytime you share the difference that Jesus makes in your life, anytime you invest that difference in others, you are preaching. You are sharing the good news and God has placed you in neighborhoods and networks of relationships. God has sent you out into your various vocations so that you can be good news and speak good news to a world that is desperate for good news, to those who are in need of mercy. Invite them in to the bigger table because Jesus' bigger table is the mechanism of mercy.
The reason that so many kids responded, the reason why we had 200 instead of 50 at the lock-in was because our church had a reputation. We put on good events. And while it was chaotic and exhausting, I walked away from that experience feeling blessed to be able to be a part of it. And it was one night. The good news of Jesus is so good that people will respond. And they are already responding. And that response will have a cost of your time, of your energy, of your resources. But the blessing of being part of building a bigger table with Jesus, the mechanism of mercy where people can encounter the benefits of worshiping passionately, connecting deeply, and living generously, it will be worth far more than whatever it costs. So part of what we're going to do today in the living room is talk a little more practically about that as we kick off our Lent season. But here's the question for you to consider. So I'll invite you to stand, and this is how we'll close. As you think about the mercy that Jesus has shown you in a world that is so much in need of that mercy, who will you invite? to Jesus' bigger table. So take a, a moment to reflect on that, and then I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you, by your work on the cross and in the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the first disciples and the continuous outpouring of your Spirit on the church, you ensured that there would be a place at your table for us. You made that space for us. And you didn't do it sort of outside of the work of regular, everyday folks. You sent people to us. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a friend. But you strategically sent someone to each and every one of us to lead us to a place at your table. And now we're here, and you're calling us to go and do the same. What was done for us, you wish to do through us for others. And so speak to us, Lord, about who those people are. Who are those people in our neighborhoods, our networks of relationships who are so much in need of your mercy, of moving from death to life. And give us the courage, Lord, and the leading and the words and the guidance to invite them to that place that you have reserved for them at your bigger table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.